Our Heavenly Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for this Lord's Day. Oh, how we need it. Every week after week after week, we need the Lord's Day. And we thank You that this day that we may stop from our labors and that we may gather as Your people. Because of Christ's finished work upon the cross, because of His resurrection, we, Your people, may gather on this first day of the week to worship You, to rest from our labors, and together in praise and honor and glory of Your name. And we thank You for this opportunity to be benefited from those who have gone before us. In fact, hundreds of years before us, uh, that we on a Sunday morning in 2024 uh, may grow and learn from our brothers who have studied Your Word and crafted language to teach us. And so we thank You for this. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would guide us and that You may be glorified through our continued study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just as a brief uh, review of last week, um, <clears throat> last week we looked at uh, Lord's Day 1. Now, just, just briefly, um, so when the Heidelberg Catechism was first drafted, it was not organized into uh, Lord's Day classifications. That came shortly afterwards, and it is a brilliant organization uh, of how to work through the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. So that's going to be our intent going forward uh, to uh, each time look at the questions and answers that are classified to a separate Lord's Day. So last week we looked at Lord's Day 1, and there's two questions there. This uh, Sunday we'll look at Lord's Day 2 and the questions that are assigned to that. That's our goal uh, as we move forward in looking at these. Last week we looked at the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. And then the second question uh, was, or is, rather, what must I know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? What must I know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answer, three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and miseries or misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. And so those are the questions that we looked at last week. And the reason why I am reading them again for you is because one of the things that you're going to find as we work through the Heidelberg Catechism is there is a building to the logic 
of each question and answer. That's not to say that each question and answer cannot stand alone, but there are tie-ins and there is a building process and we will want to familiarize, familiarize ourselves with the language and the way in which the questions and answers flow. And so you'll also see that there will be some questions and answers that will be quite expansive. There'll be some that'll be quite short. The short ones, not always, but typically are tied to those that have led to them. So, for example, our first question today is question three. How do you come to know your misery? Now, you pause there for just a second and say, if standing alone, where did that come from? But remember, in the previous question and answer, one and two, it referred to our sin and misery. Those of you who have memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism know that there are questions that emphasize this part of our fallenness, so also our redemption, those topics of sin and misery. For those of you who have read Calvin's Institutes, uh, you'll know that it's in his second chapter of his Institutes in which Calvin has an entire section on our sin and misery. Uh, And so in this Reformed tradition, it's all drawing from the same emphasis on our sin and misery. Answer, how do I come to know or how do you come to know your misery? Answer, the law of God tells me. Now, if you pause there and think about that answer, you might say, uh, would I not know I'm miserable if uh, I'm miserable? Uh, Would I not experientially say I'm miserable and so I know that I'm miserable? But here's the problem with an answer from an experiential standpoint, is there are times where we, as humans, are not, quote-unquote, miserable. In fact, you might say, um, you know, I, it, it's been a good week. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know that I feel miserable. In fact, some might even say, I'm not sure that I even like that language. I'm not sure that I even like to be classified as miserable. Uh, and, and so, all of a sudden, it can easily turn into a subjective perspective. I was miserable when I had that backache from doing that stupid yoga with Sydney on a snow day. That was misery, right? Um, but I'm not miserable when, you know, so forth and so on. That's not, of course, what the question is pointing us to. And so the answer of how do you know your misery, the reason the answer points is to the law of God because the law of God is not subjective. The law of God is objective. And so if there is a biblically definable misery, which we'll talk about, then it needs to be based not on my human experience, It needs to be based not on the world around me, but it needs to be based on something that is an objective standard. The law of God is that objective standard. And so the first question that I have for you is, do all people have an awareness of misery and a knowledge of their sin and misery? Do all people have, let's just start with the first part, do all people have an awareness of misery? 
Maybe we need to back up. Maybe we need to define what is meant here by misery. When, when the catechism says misery, what is it referring to? Our condition, spiritual condition, could be physical condition. Lost condition, right? Conviction of sin. What's the difference between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3? The fall. What was our condition, to use your term, what was our condition, our meaning mankind's condition, prior to the fall? Could, could the word misery be included in any way, form, or fashion? No. So, after the fall, then you can insert the words of sin and misery, rightly so, and why was, is our condition miserable after the fall? One is a separation from God, a lost fellowship with our Creator that Adam and Eve both enjoyed prior to the fall. What else? What else makes us miserable? Okay, death, one is death. We've, death enters the picture, which was not prior to the picture. Consequences of sin. Before sin, there were no consequences of sin because sin did not exist. Sin enters the picture, and all of a sudden then God has explained to Adam the consequences that come from that. Yes? Okay, all right. What else? What makes us miserable? Lost fellowship with God. Death. Pain. That which comes from that. I mean, you think about that. I'm joking about my, my, my back hurting from doing yoga with, with Sydney, but, you know, no, no pain prior to the fall, right? Uh, no, no death, no consequences that, draw, that, that come from the sin. That's right. There, there is a, a sin. Paul talks about that. So if you couldn't hear J.D., what he said is, is that, that Jeremiah does say that God has put His law upon our heart. Paul also echoes that in chapter 1. Of course, what's the difference between the law upon our heart and the law of God, the written special revelation of God's law? In God, God's special revelation, it articulates specifically as the objective standard. Uh, the law written upon our heart simply condemns us as guilty of that sin as lived out in the human life, right? And so, as we are miserable in this sense, the way that we have discussed it here, so when it says that we have, how do we come to know our misery? To ask the question, does all of the world know that they are miserable even though the human being has the law of God written upon their hearts? Do they deduce that they are in a miserable condition? No, they, they, they do not. In fact, it is the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes. If you think about this, if you, if you can think back, depending on when you came to faith in Christ, and think back to uh, things leading up to that, and how you saw sin, and how you saw sin differently, and sin was very different 
in your mind, in your perspective, than it was prior to the Holy Spirit opening your eyes to see that sin. We as Christians, especially those of us who came to faith in Christ at a very young age, uh, we oftentimes take for granted that we see sin in a very different light than the world does, than our neighbor does. And so the Holy Spirit just so clearly opens our eyes to see that sin. And then we say, I, as Isaiah said uh, in the vision of the throne room of heaven, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, what did he say? Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips who lives among a people of unclean lips, right? I mean, when he saw God in His holiness, the revelation of God allowed him to see it. That's what happens when we see our own sin. And we, we say, I am truly miserable because God made me to be in fellowship with Him. I'm not in fellowship with Him apart from faith in Christ. And I am indeed a miserable person by virtue of that. So, all people do not have an aware of, of misery and a knowledge of their sin in misery. Who only has this knowledge? Only those to whom the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes that they may see their sin as what it truly is, to see their condition as truly is. And so the objective standard of the law of God, uh, God the Holy Spirit uses in this. And in fact, I think if I've got it listed here, I think I've got that on your handout. I do. So to, to, to emphasize this, I want to talk about Romans chapter 7. Um, so Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Um, and, and that's chapter 3 verse 20 of Romans, but it's leading as sort of, of preempting chapter 7. I want to read to you and I can't remember if I've got it on your handout. I don't think I do. I think I just reference it, don't I? Okay, Romans chapter 7, I want to read to you in totality, Romans 7, verses 7 through 25. Now, it's a long read. You be patient with me. It's important to set the tone here. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet... If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now stop there for just a second. What, what's Paul saying there about the special revelation of God's moral law? The Ten Commandments. What, what's he saying in essence? It's very simple. I, I, I know that I sin... Because when I look at the law of God, I see that I have broken that law. That I have transgressed or trespassed, right, that, that, that law. And so he uses the example of the Tenth Commandment to say, I wouldn't have even known what coveting is if I had not read the commandment that says, you shall not covet, right? Then he goes on and says, but sin, pause there for just a second, he didn't say but the law, He's saying, here's what happens when I am exposed to the objective standard of God's moral law. Here's what my sinful flesh does. Wait for it. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. 
I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, there is, there is, I'm not going to drill into all of the language here and Paul's use of the word killing and dying and so forth. That's another thing for another day. But, but the essence of what he's saying is, is that he looks at the law of God and goes, Whoa! Wow! Just like Isaiah did in his vision, I am undone. I am guilty of all of this, and in fact, what I'm seeing here is, as Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. He, he so clearly sees what he is guilty of in terms of his sin. Paul goes on, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And you pause there for just a second. I just need someone to say amen. Okay, good. All right. Now, if I do not do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. And we pause there for just a second. I need someone else to say amen. Okay, good. Now, now, if I do what I want, do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am." Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So all of that, Paul is saying this argument that we all know by experience. That's why I was joking and saying, say amen at this part, because we say, yeah, that's it. That's, that's what I understand. I understand that when I see the law of God and I see myself against that objective standard, not based on how I feel, not based on what the world tells me, not based on my neighbor's optimism, not based on my own pessimism, but on the objective standard of the law of God, I say, Oh, wretched man that I am. I am absolutely miserable in that sense. And so that leads us then to the fourth question. Again, these are leading. What does God's law require of us? Again, this is building. Part of the problem is what God's law requires of me, right? It says, answer, Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Pause there. I mean, that's it? It's pretty simple, right? I've got it. That's all I have to do. Love God, love my neighbor. You know, this Christianity stuff's kind of working out, right? Wrong. Problem. Pause here for just a second. Whom do we offend by violating the law of God? God. You pause there for just a second, and you think about my last week, your last week. How many times, and I hope that you've got the the practice of, of consistently being in the Word of God, and I hope you've got the practice of consistently praying to the Lord, and I hope included in that consistent daily practice, you've got a time where you do confess your sins and do, in fact, repent of your sins. But how many times in just the last week did I think of my sin as offending God? That think of my sin as violating God's perfect law. I can do a pretty good job at confessing I'm a sinner. And I can do a pretty good job at confessing my sin, at least my daily reminder in, in the morning. But how easy it is for me to slip into thinking about myself and my entanglement with my sin, instead of thinking as that very sin is in fact a violation of God's law and an offense. Even the smallest, what we would consider insignificant sin, is an offense to a holy God. So then, how must we love God according to this answer? We must love God perfectly, right? Isn't that what Jesus is saying? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So we must love God perfectly in our our being, in our essence. We must love God perfectly. You think about that, and you think about Jesus referred to that first one as the greatest commandment. Why did He refer to that as the greatest commandment? If you can do if you can obey that one, you got it, right? Why did Jesus refer to that as the first commandment? I mean, if you're going down the list of ten, what's the first commandment? You, you shall have no other God before you, right? But but Jesus doesn't list the first uh, two, three, does not list the first four commandments, right? He just gives this summary which is what the the Heidelberg Catechism is doing for us. Why does he call it the first commandment? Yeah, well, of course, both are a summary of the law and the prophets. But the first, we we say in the Reformed tradition that, that the first four commandments are summed up in, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so within that, he is summarizing and saying, I'm giving you this greatest, I'm giving you this first commandment, and then the second is like it, which we say is a summary of the following six commandments, right? So, if that is the case then, what was it that the lawyer asked Jesus about the second commandment? Who's my neighbor, right? Who who is my neighbor? 
If I'm to love my neighbor as I love myself, who is my neighbor? And you don't have to, to give me uh, the, um, the parable. Uh, just give us a summary of it. What did Jesus say when asked, who is my neighbor? That's right. Any, anyone in the providence of God put in your path. Anyone that you, you connect with, we're human, human beings, not digital images, right? Uh, we as human beings have contact with other human beings. It's who God puts in our path, so to speak. That's our neighbor. And so what does on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets mean? you take it and consolidate it, take all of the law, all of the prophets, consolidate it, can it be consolidated into two verses? Answer, yes. Jesus says, this is the summary, succinct in nature. This is the consolidation in this. You think about it when in the... uh, in the Hebrew Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Uh, it is an, an expression of the oneness of God. But then it follows with this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's what Jesus is drawing from there. That is the commencement. That is Yahweh's introduction of Himself to His covenant people explaining what They are to believe concerning God what duty God requires of man in their relationship with Him. And all of this, and you're probably already thinking this, all of this you would say, yes, that that is the perfection of God's standard, God's moral law. But the problem is, John, is practically speaking, I cannot live up to the perfect standard. It doesn't matter if you give it to me in all of the books of the Old Testament or you give it to me in Jesus' succinct statement. My problem is, is I disobey the law of God. And that's what the next question asks. Can you live up to all this perfectly? Answer, <laughs> no, period. <laughs> I have, and, I, and, and, and note this, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Now, I don't think we need to spend any time on the question on whether or not, or why does the question ask why you cannot keep the law. Um, I think all of you understand the total depravity of man. There's none righteous, no, not one, uh, Paul echoes in Romans chapter 3. I think all of you probably have memorized by now, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But I think the better question for, for us to ask is, why is perfect compliance required? Why doesn't God grade on the curve? Why don't we get a pass on, well, I get the whole adultery and murder thing, but why not a pass on bearing false witness? I'm joking. 
Why is perfect compliance to God's law required? Because God is holy. That's right. God, God, God is holy and there is nothing in Him, in His very being, that is congruent with anything other than who He is in His perfection and holiness. And you say, okay, I, I'm a sinner. And so that creates a problem. If, if God is perfect in His holiness, and I'm a sinner, that's a problem for me, right? Well, that's, that's Christianity 101, right? That's where we start, where we, we look at this. But before we get there, before we look to the good news, I want to ask a question about this natural tendency. I, I love that expression. Um, what is meant here by natural tendency? There's two, two, significant, uh, two significant words. What does natural tendency mean? All right, we're spring-loaded to retaliate against a holy God. What's that mean? Natural. So let's start with natural. What does natural mean? Well, true. That is true. But even more basic than that, what does natural mean? You're born that way. That's exactly right. I am by nature this way. Right? And it, this, is, this is, gets back to the whole aspect of our sinful flesh. I mean, why do I, as a believer who has been redeemed in Christ, been indwelled by His Holy Spirit, why am I still struggling with sin? I ought to be over it by now, right? No problem. I am still a natural man. I am still dealing with my sinful flesh. And therefore, by nature of how I am born, the seed that I have received from Adam, by virtue of my nature, add the word tendency to that. My natural tendency is to do what? It is to sin, right? If you, if you say, well, I'm just wanting to get back to the, just, just get back to the basics. Just really work on, on me. Little little me time, right? Really focus on some self-help and, and, and working through all this and so forth and so on. And what's the problem with that perspective? Well, the problem with the perspective is, is I'm the problem. I will not get better alone. I will not make progress as a natural man. In fact, the more I focus on me, the more I allow me to talk to me, I find, exactly as Paul says in, in Romans chapter 7, I, pr- I find that I got a really nasty war going on inside of my heart and mind. So my natural tendency then is to break God's law. My natural tendency is to rebel against God's law. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so, the second part I want us to focus on in this answer is, do I naturally hate God? If my natural tendency is to sin against God, then he uses this expression in the catechism of hate. This sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? So I don't, I don't, I don't hate God. I don't, I don't like that answer. I... I Maybe at times I don't appreciate God. 
<laughs> Why do I naturally, or do I naturally hate God? Now again, let me rephrase, let me not rephrase it, but let me remind you, when we use the word nature, we are talking about our sin nature, our sinful flesh, what we are born with, what we are by nature. So we're not talking about the redeemed heart. We're not talking about the spirit-filled and spirit-led life. We're talking about what I do by natural default, what my natural inclination is. And in that sense, we do hate God. And if you think about it this way, and you say, well, I still think hate's a strong word, but if you think about in the garden, when Lucifer began to tempt Eve, what was one of the deciding factors in Eve's fall, in her succumbing to the temptation? You will be like God. And in that sense, she chose herself, her glory, her opportunity to be a God, small g, and chose that over love for God, obedience to God, faithfulness to God, and in fact, living eternally with God. She chose over that herself. And so that's what is meant here by, by hatred. It is self over God. It is disobedience over obedience. And so we naturally, in and of ourselves, hate God. This is the way that the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, he says, For the mind is set on the flesh and is hostile to God. That Greek word translated hostile there is akin to hatred. It is for a hatred for God that I choose myself, my flesh, over God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. My flesh, left in and of itself, cannot submit to God's law. Incidentally, if I may just chase the rabbit for just a second in terms of, of moral reform, it's why we as Christians put a heavy emphasis upon conversion, put a heavy emphasis upon living in obedience to the Spirit of God. It's why we put a heavy emphasis upon, and you hear me pray from the pulpit, for revival in our land. Because here's the problem. You can go through the greatest moral reformation in the history of this country. And you can see things turned around and all of a sudden good living and so forth and so on. But if you don't change the heart... All you have done is conformed man to an outward standard and they will live a quote-unquote good life and spend eternity in eternal torment in hell. And so there must be a change. It's, it's why we as Christians pray for revival. We pray for the preaching of the Word. We pray that hearts will be converted I mean, heck, I even pray for our politicians that they'll be converted. I don't even know what they're voting about. I just pray that they'll come to know Christ. And in Christ, then, Christ will change their lives. It changes my life. It changes your life as we submit to God's perfect standard. And so, in this sense, when we say 
that we cannot, or that my flesh will not submit to God's law, that is in the sense of my natural tendency. Or you think about this, we, J.D. said that our, our neighbors, anyone whom God puts, who God puts in our path, and I ask then, well, then do I naturally hate my neighbor? I mean, some of you might, I don't know. <laughs> Depends, I guess, how rowdy your neighbor is. But, of course, we're talking about anyone put in my path. Do I, do I naturally hate my neighbor? Answer, yes. Because in the garden, if you think about Eve's sin, was she concerned about the consequences of, upon Adam? Was she concerned about the consequences upon their posterity? No. She was only concerned with herself. I will be like God. And so this is the way that Paul puts it to Titus. He says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. (laughs) That's a pretty good description of what life is like apart from Christ. And so we do, in our flesh, naturally hate our neighbor in the sense that, that we will think of ourselves more highly than someone else. It's what's important to me. This is what happens within our culture, right? Our culture is rampant with the perspective of me first. What's best for me? What I'm going to call myself. What pronouns I'm going to use of myself. How you are supposed to recognize me as I see myself. All of this is nothing new. This goes all the way back to the garden. All the way back to the beginning that I do hate God. I do hate my neighbor naturally in my flesh. And that's why, and I think J.D. quoted it at the very beginning of the class, it's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were, that is all who are in Christ, this is what characterized your life. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the description of what we, we were in Christ. Now, the catechism is going to take us there, but you're going to have to wait for another Lord's Day before we get there. But I'm not going to end the class without the gospel because there needs to be a big conjunction there, right? But what? But what's the difference? Why are we no longer like that? Why are we no longer slaves of Satan? Why are we no longer slaves and victims and helplessly attached and pushed under the pressure of our desires and everything they will. Why are we no longer like that? We do struggle with some of that, don't we? But I am no longer defined as a son or daughter of disobedience, but rather a child of God. For by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone... I am a child of God through faith in Christ. That's the good news, right? I, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, have been crucified with Christ. 
And then he goes on and explains his identity. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then he says, And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In other words, Paul, what Paul is saying is, is if you want to know who Paul is, if you want to know what my identity is, here it is. Christ and Him crucified. You want to know how to refer to me? You know how I want the world to see me? You know how when I walk in a room, someone says, there is there's the slave of Christ, the child of God. That's what Paul says. That's our identity. Praise be to God. Let me pray for us. And so our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that by Your grace, that we in fact are children of God, children that You have adopted through faith in Christ. And we thank You that we are no longer characterized as the sons and daughters of disobedience. We are no longer characterized uh, by nature, children of wrath, uh, but we are indeed Yours and Yours alone. And we pray through our continued study, even as we go into worship now, that we would be mindful of our redemption in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, may, be he, may He be exalted in our lives, in our obedience to, do, to You, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.